Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. How you guys doing tonight? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm good as well. Excellent. Tonight, we are only going to be discussing one episode, uh, which, is, which will be uh, Season 1, Episode 22, Chrysalis. But, as that is our season finale, we are also going to be taking this time to look back at our coverage of the first season, as we have various questions to discuss and tortures to put myself through to tease me about the future seasons. Um, (laughs) And we also have uh, listener questions, despite the fact that, at this point, we have aired zero episodes, so so that's some dedication for our fans. Yeah, I I think what we really have is people who follow justin on twitter and enjoy watching them have meltdowns uh have contributed some questions it's a it's an admirable quality of mine i think i i mean that's how this podcast happened Uh, yep all right so we've got one episode let's talk about it this is season one episode 22 chrysalis written by j michael straczynski and directed by janet greek we open in the council chambers, where the Narn and Centauri are debating over recent Narn moves in Quadrant 37. Malari insists that the territory is neutral space, as was certified in a treaty between the two races. Shakar refuses to accept this treaty, as it was forced under threat. Londo makes a threat. Shakar refuses to continue, stating that they will continue when the Centauri can discuss things in a civilized fashion. On the Zocalo, a man who is grievously wounded approaches Garibaldi, warning him that there is someone who will be killed. The man, Stephen Petrov, is rushed to Medlab. Garibaldi explains to Sinclair and Ivanova that Petrov is a petty thief turned snitch. Franklin emerges from Medlab and announces Petrov is dead. Garibaldi sets out to find out why he was murdered. Later that evening, while watching the news with Catherine Sakai about the president's tour of the Earth colonies, Sinclair pops the question. I'm sure it'll work out great for these kids. (laughs) Londo ruminates on the state of the Centauri as they have decided to concede Quadrant 37, and he receives a message from Mr. Morden, who asks him to meet in the gardens. Delenn, meanwhile, is completing what looks like a crystal house of cards in her corners, and asks Lanier if her message to Kosh was relayed. Lanier confirms and relays Kosh's reply. Yes. Anxious about this, Delenn leaves and orders Lanier to wait for her. Garibaldi looks into down below and finds a lurker there who knew Petrov. Petrov had been employed to load some cargo for a clandestine cargo ship, and what he saw there spooked him. The employer was a man named Devereaux, and Garibaldi sets out to find him. Londo meets Morden in a hedge maze in the gardens. Morden offers to take care of the problem in Quadrant 37. Londo is in disbelief, but Morden insists. He tells Londo that he's doing this as a free gift, and to tell the Centauri government that it will be taken care of. 
Nothing could possibly go wrong. Beware of, uh, what is it? Uh, who did you say that he looks like? Uh, Ross Geller, John Travolta. Yeah. <laughs> Beware of Ross Geller's bearing free gifts. Yeah. Delenn confronts Kosh in his quarters. She expresses doubts about what is to come and insists that she wishes to see Kosh with her own eyes. Kosh opens his encounter suit and reveals his true form, to which only Delenn is able to see this in the scene. And Delenn agrees to keep her promise, saying that he will not see her again as she is now. Garibaldi tracks down Devereaux in the casino with two of his associates. He tries to question them, but they refuse to cooperate, so he drags them to security. Devereaux warns Garibaldi not to get involved. Londo meets with Veer, who tells him to relay to the Centauri government that Quadrant 37 will be dealt with. Veer is shocked, but complies. Sinclair then meets with Jakar in his quarters, trying to appeal to him to see reason on the Quadrant 37 issue. Jakar does not want to acquiesce, saying the regime must expand. Sinclair compares Narns to victims of abuse who are perpetuating new violence as a response, and urges Jakar to see that they are at a crossroads and to think hard about this. Later, at a fancy dinner, Catherine and Sinclair reveal their engagement to Garibaldi and Ivanova, asking them to be respective best men and the maid of honor. Their meal is interrupted when somebody from security comms Garibaldi to let him know that Devereaux and his associates have disappeared from lockup. This unnerves Garibaldi, and he notes that the PPGs he took off the men were lacking serial numbers, a trait only found in Earth Force secret agents' weapons. We cut to the Narn outpost in Quadrant 37, where we get the return of those spooky cloaking ships. They completely, utterly obliterate the outpost, wiping out three cruisers and all of their defenses in minutes. Ivanova returns to duty in CNC. She watches the ISN news that reveals that Vice President Morgan Clark has deported Earth Force One due to a virus. Garibaldi looks through cargo left behind from Devereaux's cargo ship that Petrov had worked on. His aide, Jack, assists as they go through the materials. Garibaldi finds a jamming device, which is said to emit static on the gold frequency for Earth Force One. Shocked, Garibaldi requests to meet up with Sinclair to discuss this in person. After he runs off, Jack calms someone else. As he hurries, Garibaldi runs into Devereaux. As Garibaldi draws his PPG, he is shot in the back. Jack stands over him and takes Garibaldi's leak, leaving him for dead. As Sinclair and Ivanova try to find Garibaldi, Delenn visits the former in his quarters. She shows him the triangular item she was given by the Grey Council and asks Sinclair if he recognizes it. Sinclair does from the Battle of the Line and lets her know what he remembers from their encounter. Delenn suggests they go to her quarters to speak, but the current crisis means that it must wait. Delenn warns him, though, that this cannot wait too long. Natoth informs Jakar of the destruction of the outpost, with 10,000 Narn dead. Jakar realizes that none of the players would have done this. Earth has no motive, Centauri Prime lacks the spine, the Minbari would not use sneak attacks, the Vorlons don't care about the space, and the League doesn't have the strength. The only solution is it was... something else. Garibaldi's unconscious wounded body is found in a transport tube at midnight, Happy New Year! <laughs> Personally, loving the start. Back in Delenn's quarters, Lanier expresses his concerns about what they are about to do. If Delenn is wrong, it will mean her death. Delenn believes that she is fulfilling a prophecy, and places the triangular device at the top of the Crystal House of Cards, and then activates it. Garibaldi is rushed to MedLab, where in a moment of clarity, he warns Sinclair of the upcoming attack on Earth Force 1 at the transfer point at Io. 
Sinclair tries to have CNC broadcast a warning, but it's being jammed. Sinclair reaches CNC just as Earth Force One explodes on the live news feed. Garibaldi goes into surgery, and Sinclair orders Devereaux found. Jakar and Natoth encounter Ivanova in the transport tube, and they both exchange condolences for their respective tragedies. Londo meets with Morden, the former of which is appalled at the destruction of the colony. Morden dismisses it as they were only Narns, and indicates to Londo that this is already boosting his status in the Centauri court. Morden explains that he'll be a hero now, which is the whole point of their endeavor. Sinclair argues with a senator from Earth. The explosion, despite Garibaldi's findings, is being labeled an accident, and the senator orders Sinclair to remain silent on the issue. Devereaux and his associates are found by Jack in what looks like a pretty obviously staged killing, though he gets the other security officers to drop it. All cops are bastards. Sinclair watches Morgan Clark being sworn in on the newsfeed. As he watches, he is approached by Kosh, who asks him if he forgot something. Sinclair rushes to Delenn's quarters, but it is too late. Delenn is in a cocoon of some sort. She will change, but into what? Natoth arrives back at the ambassador's quarters, where a recorded message reveals to her that Jakar has left. He has suspicions about the attack and is going to investigate. He doesn't know when he will be back. In his quarters, Morden speaks with two barely visible aliens. He tells the aliens that Londo is perfect for what they need. They just need time. Lanier stands vigil over Delenn, waiting for the future. And that is season one of Babylon 5. Yeah, that's that's a wrap for the season. And what a wrap it is. Yeah, there's a lot going yeah. on here. We've also got uh, an episode without a B-plot. There's a couple of those I mean, here at the, yeah. it's all, in the street yeah. here. Yeah, there's no real A, B, or C-plot. We've just got all this tangling shit. Yeah, we just have the plot. Yeah. Um, this episode is the start of an arc for Jakar, which I adore. Jakar has such a good arc, and this is really the start of where Jakar stops being... He It wasn't like he was one-dimensional before, but this is the start of Jakar's... Where Jakar get, starts getting really interesting, is yeah. this episode. And I cannot wait to get into where he gets really, really interesting. Cause I just love it. It's my favorite. One of my favorite character arcs in the entire show. And I, I absolutely love that moment between Jakar and Sinclair as Sinclair, mm-hmm. I think says something that's really revealing to Jakar and makes him actually think, you know, that, that quote about, you know, that, um, They've they've been abused and that's awful, but now they're just perpetuating that over and over again. Yeah. And that they need to break the cycle. Yeah, I'm gonna miss Sinclair's brand of quiet wisdom. Yeah. Spoilers. Except not. Um we've talked about the fact that uh Sinclair leaves after this episode abruptly. It's not that I dislike Sheridan at all, but for sure he's got a real different energy than Sinclair yeah. does. Oh, yeah. Sinclair's got this, like, we've talked about it. He's got this warrior monk kind of energy, I would I would say. Yeah, I think, you know, the whole Jesuit backstory is a big thing with that. Yeah, the seeker sort of uh, element to his character, uh, which Sheridan for sure does not have. 
Sheridan's got his own thing going on, and I don't yeah. dislike what Sheridan's got going on, but he's he does not have that like wise seeker, like that mystique to him. He's got a something else. Yeah. He almost yeah, he and this is where Sheridan also, you know, this is something that we'll get into. Sheridan also changes throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. and it's a fairly natural progression, I think, as the events unfold. But when we see him at the start of season two, he's very different from who he is as the the more dramatic events in season three, four, five unfold. Yeah, for sure. But I, I, I will miss Sinclair. I will not miss Sinclair and Sakai's relationship. Oh, it's <laughs> so bad. And we got the we got the like softcore space porn yeah. music again. Um not loving that honestly. Um it, it's it's the thing of like the propo- the proposal scene in this episode is it's it's like it's almost like offensively bad. <laughs> they have no chemistry and it's so Here's the thing. It's not even like it's not even like writing chemistry. It's not even like actor chemistry at this point. The scene is just like written terribly as well. And it's well, just I, yeah, I don't understand. It's like <laughs> it's so bad. Every other part of this episode <laughs> is great. It's like it's is written is written by a competent human being. And every other scene with Sakai, she's a perfectly good actress. And every other scene with Sinclair, he's a perfectly good actor. And they can act against other human beings just fine. <laughs> Which you put the two of them in a scene together, and all of a sudden, it's like episode two. It's like Star Wars episode two level writing. And you have two people who are acting as though they have literally never acted against another human being. It's like you've taken a fucking yeah. wild man who has never met another human being <laughs> in its entire life and told them to do a scene with another wild man who has never met another human being in its entire life and told them to do a scene together. It's like everything goes wrong when you put them together. Uh, they just have no chemistry. And as characters, it's not – and as a – Final insult to injury. Even as characters, I don't like them. Like, they're, they're, their entire these two thing people, of like why they're saying yes is like is basically just we've been doing this long enough. Why not? <laughs> That's yeah, basically what it is. It's just dumb. These these two characters and these two actors don't work. This is not a peanut butter and chocolate situation where you have two different things that go well together. This is a peanut butter and head cheese situation. I like peanut butter. I like head cheese. Ugh. I would not put peanut butter and head cheese together. Ugh. That is a thing that would that would be disgusting and would not go well together. Yeah, but yeah, the, the two of them have the two of them have awful chemistry together. The two of them are I, I want to like them and I I kind of want to like that proposal scene because it does, you know, it's it, it's not that far off from like how my husband and I decided to get married where it's like, well, you know, I guess it makes sense. Like, let's do it. I I understand that, but it's like, it's also just like as somebody who likes a good romance and just like, if they had like any chemistry and they were like doing this as like a quirky thing, I would like this probably like 60% more than I currently do. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That like, I want to, I want to like it, but it's impossible. Yeah. And, you know, it would be interesting if the if they had any chemistry whatsoever to have that sort of like quiet practical 
proposal scene of like, hey, you want to get married? Yeah, let's do it. As opposed to like the grand gesture where he like calls her from CNC and like showers flowers from the Zocalo or something ridiculous and awful. Oh, God, that would have um, been so embarrassing. <laughs> but instead, they're two wolf people that have never interacted with another human being. So. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I'd rather watch that than watch the two of them have another romantic scene. <laughs> I honestly would. And it's not, it's not like JMS is completely incapable of writing romance, although he's not... I mean, it's not his forte, but he's not George Lucas. Like, <sighs> he can... He can land it. He, it's not his expertise, but he can stick that landing if he needs to. This is not a Padme Anakin thing where it's just completely beyond him. <laughs> so this was this was the start of when I actually started taking detailed notes on like an on like writing them out as I was watching episodes and not just like tweeting into the maelstrom. So um, some some things that I have from this episode that I want to that I want to put out there. What time zone is B five in? I don't know if it's ever explicitly said. I'm sure it's on a wiki somewhere. Uh, yeah. I bet you any money, though, that it's UTC. That makes sense. Like, just pulling shit out of nowhere. My guess would be that it w- works off of whatever is, like, Earth Force military time standard or something like that. Yeah. My next thing is, Happy New Year, we're all fucked. Yeah, a president being assassinated at New Year's feels like a, a dire omen. For yeah. A my my next one is while you were partying, the Minbari studied making card houses out of glass. <laughs> yes. Um, Very good. Garibaldi's aide has a bitch ass smile, mm-hmm. it, which he is a fucking rat. Um, and then finally, <laughs> at the end of this episode, what's this? Delet is evolving. Delet evolved into Metapod. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, I remember when I watched this episode for the first time, and I remember when it reveals, like, the cocoon, and I remember just being like, what the high holy fuck is going on? And I remember so clearly thinking, I did not have turns into a bug on my bingo card. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just remember thinking of all the things that was going to happen with that crystal thing, Bug Cocoon was not in the top 10. That's such a wild piece of technology. Yeah. How, was, how did somebody come up with this? Okay, so that's something that we're going to have to talk about in season three, because that's that's a really good question. Uh, what else? I don't think I have anything else for... Uh, we, we get the, we get, get the return of the sexy Jakar Oh, the sexy chest, chest piece. piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and this is the episode that has the scene where three <laughs> what look like exotic dancers leave that's Jakar's right. quarters. God, yeah, which to me... I, like, I kept forgetting to put it in the dock, but I was just like... Like after I watched that, I was like, I don't remember why I forgot that 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 shot there. Maybe I was just like looking down at my notes or something. But dang, that is some serious pipey is like. <laughs> hey man, look, if you were as sexy as Jakar is, you <laughs> you would be pulling that much tail too. But nobody is as sexy as Jakar is, and. Nobody can. That's just how it works. 
And I think my um, favorite part of that scene is also just straight out Natoff, who starts out telling Sinclair, the ambassador is very busy right now. And then the three <laughs> ladies walk out of Jakar's bedroom and she's like, the ambassador is now free. Uh, very good. Uh, did we talk about the fact that apparently, I, I'm, I, I have to believe that we talked about it the first time the sexy chess piece was out. The the anecdote that apparently uh, Andreas Katsalas liked to wear the sexy chess piece just around set and just like to <laughs> prowl around like a sexy panther with it on. God bless him. Uh, yeah, apparently uh, that was like a thing that he liked to do. He just felt great in it. And would I just mean, lounge around set wearing like a robe and the sexy chess piece. And who wouldn't? I mean, it's a powerful piece of costuming. Right? No German uh, can convict you. <laughs> I love it. I think I think it's just great. We we also get a favorite Londo moment. Yes. So in, in one of the scenes, uh Londo is expressing his disdain and it says to Vier, I am being pecked to death by oh, what is that? Earth animal. Feathers, long beal, webbed feet. Goes quack. Cats. I am being nibbled to death by cats. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It is. It's, it's a great quote, and it's so good. Londo's delivery and your delivery of it is so good. I love it. It's it's one of my favorite Londo scenes. It's it's up there with the hokey pokey as good <laughs> Londo scenes. Yeah. I I also rewatched this episode today and one of the scenes that really struck me was the one with Londo and Morden after the events with the with the colony being <laughs> destroyed yeah where Londo is shocked this is not how he wanted it to go down and i think you know this is the start of a the start of a path for Londo yeah yeah there's a great quote that I read, uh, not a quote, but there's uh, JMS was talking, and I read this on the Lurkers page for Revelations, the next episode, where he's talking about uh, Londo's scene with Morden in that episode. But he's saying, like, do, the question I think was, does Londo not realize what's going on? And he's like, no, absolutely. Londo knows exactly what's going on. Like, of course he knows he's in trouble, but Londo is a guy that's kind of over the hill. Here it is. Uh, of course, Londo realized he's being not exactly set up, but he, that he's getting into a very bad situation. But on the other hand, he sees that perhaps this is his last chance to grab for something more than what he is. He's not a young man anymore. And offer such as this, even though he knows there will be a price someday, do not come along every day. Here's the key to characterization. Who is your character? What does he want? How far will he go to get it? And what is he prepared to lose in the process? And I think you can see that last line. Who is your character? What does he want? How far will he go to get it? And what is he prepared to lose in that process? In a lot of characters in Babylon 5, but nowhere as clearly as with Londo. Side note, that's also just a baller set of questions for making a TTRPG character. That's absolutely Londo's, like defining line how far is he willing what does he want how far will he go to get it and what is he prepared to lose it in the process 
Also, I'll note that that has um, that has the two the two questions in it. Mm-hmm. It does. Who are you and what do you want? Yeah, Londo in that scene, you can see his horror at what has happened because of him. But he, you can also see the the temptation, the pull of like what it also is gotten him. Yeah. And you can see that how far, what is he prepared to lose in that process? And a little bit of his centaur manity apparently is something he's prepared to lose to get what he wants. Yep. It's such, it's such a good scene. Oh, we have, we have one, we have one note here of why the hell does B5 have a hedge maze? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that that was Uh, like, I was like, I was like, why is that considered a, like, are these like just oxygen rich plants? Because I cannot think of a, at some point, like, oh, maybe it's basil. Like, (laughs) why do we have a garden? Like, we have a garden, so, like, oh, hey, we could grow fruit and vegetables and, like... Oregano. Get, get oxygen there. But, like, a hedge maze seems just, Mint. like, aesthetic. Like... Uh, uh, Maybe it's an herb hedge. <laughs> no? You don't think that's a practical way, a practical way to build uh, usage? Nah. Maybe it's pot. Quite possibly. But on the other hand, um, we do know that Ivanova's coffee plant is is banned from the gardens. Um, so presumably pot would be as well. I feel like that's fucked up. I feel like that was thoroughly uh, uncalled for. Indeed. So season one. Yeah. Uh, what, Justin, as the, the newbie, uh, I have two questions. What were your thoughts at the close of season one when you watched it initially? And now looking back at it, as we as we look at it today, what are your thoughts on season one? Okay, so this is specifically centered on the finale because those were those were some of like my big points at that time. The first thing was was like, wow, that's a lot. I want to talk about it. And like I, I wrote down a bunch of stuff about like what I thought was gonna happen. Season one is interesting if you know you're going to get a season two and you know that there's something to be looking forward to. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. it's a lot more tolerable from the fact that I wouldn't have to wait an entire summer to pick it up again. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I am personally of the opinion that 99% of television seasons are too long. I am definitely of the opinion that b5 season one could have probably been 15 episodes it would be really interesting to see this season reshaped as 10 episodes each one hour long my my thought with this is that there's a lot of setup that we're gonna go through this we're gonna it's it is the equivalent of watching a well done run game do the same halfback dive eight times in the first 12 plays of a game because you and you're like okay 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 can we get to this point because you know they're trying to set up play action and that's when the fun stuff's gonna happen uh Mm -hmm. but you're just like come on come on no you can start doing this earlier yeah so that's accurate and i think it's important when we talk about that to place this within its context which is I'm not saying that Babylon 5 invented long-form storytelling in television, but nobody had done 
a five-year plan like Babylon 5 did. And it certainly blazed the trail for it in ways that no other show had ever done. So it was very much, it didn't have a, a blueprint to work from. There are definitely things where it shows that. Yeah, and it was fighting against the assumptions of an audience and a studio that were like, why are you not Star Trek? Why are yeah. you not doing Freak of the Week episodes? And well, and particularly since this aired at the same time as Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Um, and uh, if I'm recalling correctly, there's a bit of dirt on that, um, which is that uh, originally B5 was pitched to Paramount. Huh. That's funny. Paramount decided to pass and then uh, announced a new Star Trek show set on a space station because they they uh, it was pitched it was pitched to them and they had the and as part of the pitching they got the show bible interesting yeah i don't want to compare it always to star trek right. because this is just right. like this is just a thing like i'm trying to like trying to mostly do it on its own thing cuz i think that like those were two very different absolutely the two shows are extremely different it's just that in the time and space that it was in that was what executives were and audiences were comparing it to as far right. as the expectation. Right. Like it was it was going up, you know, at the time it was going up against the Star Trek show set on a station with yeah. politics and long form storytelling that wasn't quite as long form as this, but still had you know, Deep Space Nine was the first foray of Star Trek into something more long form. Yeah. They were talking about how it was a blessing that the they never did as well as other shows because the the studio stopped paying attention to them. <laughs> and so they they were allowed to do they were allowed to be a little bit weird. And I think this show is the opposite of that. This Babylon 5, you look at JMS's notes on Lurker's Guide was heavily meddled with. The studio was constantly interfering with this show. Uh and there's definitely evidence of that. Yeah, we know that there were, you know, certain relationships between characters that were planned, etc., that were not allowed by the studio. Yeah. Anyway. That that is I think a very astute uh summary of season 1 that it's all it's a whole lot of setup. There is it's st stacking up the dominoes. Yeah. I and, and it, it definitely it feels like it's in first gear for for pretty much the entire season. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is that, like, I think there's a lot of episodes where, like, this is just coming from a writer's standpoint of just, like, where I don't think the stake, where, like, stakes either don't feel intense enough or they're not defined enough. Um, yeah. Or they're not, you don't know them because you don't, until you've seen the whole show. Yeah. Because there are definitely episodes in season one where if you've seen the whole show, you're just like, you know, I know what's happening here. But if you're watching the episode, you're just like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Like every time we've had Justin take off their headphones. Yeah, which, which yeah, I think exactly. is, which I think is like that. That is a that is a challenge in long form storytelling. Is that you want to make the whole you want to make the whole you know a cohesive thing. But I mean, it, it, it's. Like you, but there, but there comes a point of like you still want to have people tuning in every week. It'd be so fascinating to see this as in the format of like modern prestige TV with 
Yeah. Fewer episodes, longer episodes, and less definition between episodes. Like more of, you know, okay, here's one season that is um, 10 hours of runtime. Go. Yeah. Where it's almost like the cuts between episodes can be less of like, well, we're done with today's story and next time we'll pick up with a new story and more like, well, that was the cliffhanger between sub arcs. Yeah. That would be that would be fascinating to see with Babylon 5. Mhm. Agreed. I think that would clean up a bunch of the a bunch of this kind of setup because I think that a bunch of it could be strung together in a way that would feel more fluid rather than, you know, okay, well we've got today's story about, you know, a Mimbari corpse that goes missing and also we're going to throw in backstory. Mhm. I I think part of it is also just like coming out of a 22 episode season. I don't want to say it feels like I don't know some of the characters, but it's just like, I still have no idea what Tolly Winter's deal is beyond shows up in an episode to read somebody's thoughts and have a headache. Yeah. It's a big cast. Yeah. To a lesser extent, I would say that that's also like with Ivanova, like there, there are ep- there are just like straight up just like a couple episodes where she doesn't even have like scenes in them. Yeah, yeah. the The strongest Ivanova episode was TKO. Her plot in that is so good. I think this is partly just because of how the cast is designed, but it's partly also just because it's like. I said I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to compare it to other sci-fi shows where you're going to have, where in that procedural science fiction show, you're going to have different people be the protagonist of an episode who are driving the main action. I wouldn't say that, like, even in TKO, Ivanova is not driving the action in that episode. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that it, it's still a very good episode, but it's like, there aren't any episodes, I really think, in season one where she's getting to drive the action or be the main player in it. Right. I think that's that's an interesting point because especially especially writing up so many of these um, summaries, you know, realizing, well, here we're at another episode and a uh, another another stranger comes through customs mm-hmm. um, is like the the standard opener that they spend so much time on this season dealing with sort of external threats like. They have to deal with crisis, a crisis because, you know, a ship came in from out of the system or because uh, somebody came to the station or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's it's uh, there's a there's a it doesn't leave as much bandwidth for the kind of internal problems of characters dealing with each other and themselves. The episodic framework that was the expected form that that the show would take at the time constricts a lot of the storytelling week over week. And JMS finds a lot of creative ways to fit the long form story in and around that, knowing that he can't have every episode be a plot heavy pile driver. It's not even like the plots that I, that is like issue is just like one of those things of like, I, I feel like we had more, I, part of this, I think, is just distribution because I feel like we had more Franklin-centric episodes than we did Ivanova-centric episodes. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I'm not sure how they're built, but I'm but I, I'm like I almost want to say Franklin is a recurring guest star, or I don't know if he's a main. I can't remember the the the. He, he's type. a main. Okay. Yeah, he's yeah. a main. But it's just like main butthole. <laughs> I, I it, it really feels like throughout the first season, Straczynski doesn't know what he has with the cast outside of having some very talented people playing the ambassadors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it definitely and I there's there's other writers in the season, but it's like it it, it definitely feels like they're they're like holding back on a lot of the humans. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The first season is very much uh exploratory in terms of the show's potential. JMS is very much working the kinks out as far as production and writing and what are the actors capable of, and it. Yeah, I would agree with that yeah. for sure. I like overall, I'd give it like C plus B minus. Like that. That's like mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's good. How it like, but coming at this from a twenty twenty view, I'm grading on a curve. <laughs> yeah, and also yeah. it's one of those things where if it had been canceled at the end of season one, it would be so entirely unmemorable as a show. Oh, totally. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be like the the Firefly canceled after season one and fans still sobbing over it for some reason. Mm-hmm. It would be yeah. unremarked upon. It's it's really the later seasons that make it the you know cult classic. Yeah. The two shows I compared it to in my notes were if like if this had if this had just gone gone away after season one or maybe even season two. I was comparing it to Jericho. Where it's just like it's a show that had potential, but like it's just like I this is definitely like it's gonna start something in this, and I, I like there's this is a couple year a couple years down the road we're gonna get Alias, which is going to completely change how like mainstream television, not just genre, not just like genre sci-fi television view storytelling, but like Alias is going to completely change the game. Mm-hmm. And then in eight years, we're going to get Battlestar Galactica, which is... I I would say, I I would throw Game of Thrones in there as another thing that um, was very, very changing the state of TV. Yeah. The the biggest one is going to be The Sopranos, which we're sci-fighters. We don't give a shit about that. (laughs) I did want to... I did have something from the actual episode that I wanted to talk about. There is a Lord of the Rings quote... Yeah, yes, there is. Oh, yeah. uh, which is Jakar's mm-hmm. parting word. I was like, I, I'm like, I was like, I recognize that line, so I had to look it up, and it was just, uh, which is Jakar's parting line to Toth and his message, which is, "Expect me when you see me." Remember, remember when we said that the, you know, going to the sea, going into the west was like not even the most blatant of the Tolkien references. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. JMS is a huge. Lord of the Rings nerd. Next episode, we're going to have, uh, I'm going to be dragging him about that a little bit. (laughs) You'll see. I have another question for you. Yeah. Uh, This is for the entire podcast. What is your favorite episode of the season? I'm just going to shoot my shot here and say, by any means necessary. That's a really good one. Yeah, I I think it's, I think it's the, it, it is not really plot relevant, but I think it's a, it's it's a unique blend of a story that is very relevant. I think 
pretty much everybody in that in that episode is doing some good acting, and it has a very good B plot that goes into alien spirituality, which is you know my shit. It's also got like like that B plot is alien spirituality and Jakar and Londo being petty bitches. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I I think in terms of like I have I have I think various categories of favorite in terms of plot i think my favorite would be babylon squared if just because how it how it fits into everything and i fucking love that episode i'd say that as my as my like dark horse that i just always enjoy watching despite the sinclair sakai content um i'm gonna go with parliament of dreams interesting cool Cool. Okay. I love the glimpse that we see into the various alien cultures. Yeah. And I love the glimpse that we see into Sinclair's brain. Yeah. In terms of how he how he deals with that particular challenge and and I also like that it's setting up the idea of there being older stranger races still afoot in the galaxy. Yeah, that would be high on my list for sure. Also, just the scene, it's got such solid Jakar content. Yeah, it really does. So that's my Dark Horse fave that I just always love watching. Yeah, I would definitely say that that would be in my top three. Believe it or not, despite how hard I dragged the episode in my summary, Quality of Mercy is is in my top three as well because the scenes with Lanier and Londo and the alien dicks is some of my favorite stuff. That's like my favorite non-plot episode just be just for the Lanier and Londo stuff cuz I I legitimately love Lanier and Londo's relationship and the scenes with them at the card table uh and the you know card stealing alien dicks is one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen on TV. Uh, it's just so fucking good. It's so good. I think the other favorite of mine, I don't know. Signs Importance is real good. I'm a big fan of that one. Yeah, that's that's another one in the kind of actual plot category. I mean, I also, I swear, TKO, like I'll practically fast forward through the Walker Smith bits because they're awful. But the... yeah. Ivanova subplot is one of my favorite pieces of writing and acting, just like practically on the show as a whole. Um, It feels so human. And I think it's I and I don't I don't think it's a coincidence as well that I'm picking an episode that like really is a establishing episode for Sinclair. Yeah. with with Parliament of Dreams that I think that that's the turning point for where Sinclair clicks for O'Hare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and he actually and he starts you know warming up to the role and I think TKO is the same for Ivanova and Claudia Christian. Yeah. Those kind of establishing establishing moments for the characters I think are really important in a show a show like this. Agreed. I'm going to give a gold star out to Grail. Oh, 
Just, oh, yeah. just, just it's a it's it's a wonderful episode. I feel like the ones that are that, that speak to me most out of season one are the ones that want to say th- something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that by any means necessary and Grail, um, those are those those both have interesting things they want to say as like pieces of content and like uh, if you want to listen to like our thoughts on those, you can listen to those previous episodes. I'm trying to think, like, if if I had to round it out with a third, um... I suspect that once you watch season three, you're going to put B-squared on the list. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think B-squared is, like, even knowing it's important, it's an episode that, like... I, oh, like, I, when, I'm, when I'm, like, talking about, like, favorite episodes, I'm, I at least try to, like piece them together as how do they stand up as 44 minutes of television which which i think that babylon squared is interesting it just in the episode itself the stakes are weirdly defined so it it doesn't ha- it's it's interesting but it's like it's not something that i can glom onto as hard um i'll go ahead and say infection no i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> as long as you don't say believers God, no. Uh, Would you believe I read a thing on Reddit, a guy talking about the episode of Babylon 5, and he was like uh, a guy watching the, the the season like from the dark. He'd never even heard of the show when he was watching it. And he said his favorite episode of season one was Believers. And I was like, close thread. <laughs> yeah. I was like, look, everybody gets to have an opinion, but that is that's Th- that opinion is wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's funny because that's that's an episode. You know, speaking of episodes that, like, we're trying to say something, that one, both Infection and Believers, I feel like this is a thing with Franklin in general, right? That all of the Franklin episodes where they're trying to say something with Franklin as a vehicle just flop so bad. Because Franklin sucks. Um, Because he's an insufferable get. Yeah. Having watched the whole first season and written... That summary for fucking quality of mercy. That is my my hot my hot take for this this podcast that I didn't entirely embrace until I wrote that that summary. That Franklin fucking sucks. Infection like has some interesting things to say with like you know the grave robbing of alien planets and the purity ideology and all that but it's also just an awful episode yes and believers has some interesting things to say about like medical paternalism and some of the the interplay between belief and science but but also fucking sucks yeah we're gonna be covering this in a few episodes we're talking about like episodes of something to say about them i i like we might have to budget an entire episode for talking about geometry of shadows oh absolutely yeah <laughs> just because that's got a lot working for it okay anything else that we want to get out of the way for our end of season discussion i think we just have the listener questions at this point okay from our from our listeners who don't exist yet. Yes, I we, we put out the call and some people uh, very griefers maybe would be a better griefers questions. Yeah. Um, so first, Zathras asks, "Why do you do this to poor Zathras?" Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. You signed up for this. You knew what you were <laughs> dedicated for. You just. <laughs> 
We subbed out Zathras for Jude, and that's how the Chaos Quotient got tripled. <laughs> for a uh, let's let's uh, I'm gonna bounce around with these questions. Uh, so Dragon Cobalt, uh, who uh, has a lot of Babylon Five thoughts, and he's one of the pers- one of the people most uh, interested in this rewatch. The, bo- the one of the big Twitter responders. Yes, um, asks, uh, and I, this will be. We'll, we'll open this up and then just talk about the differences. Were you going into the show expecting Earth Force to be similar uh, to Starfleet from the Star Treks, and was the fact that they're considerably more shady and militaristic come as a shock? It didn't really, but that's because I've also watched like Battlestar and Stargate. Yeah, I think it would have been a shock at the time. Yeah, I can see how it could have been a shock to some viewers, like, especially in, like, 1995. But part of that, like, part of the reason that it didn't shock me is the costuming. That's exactly what I was mm-hmm. about to mention. The costumes in B5 make it very clear this this is not Starfleet, this is a military. It's very, like, 20th century uniforms. And, like, it was just, like, it was a thing of just, like, I try not to assume anything about it and just, like, I try not to make assumptions about going into shows of, like, like, it's, like, okay, what 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 do I get told about this? And, like, the fact that it's, like, you know, you're, the three Earth Force officers you have repeating on the show are COXO security. It's, like, okay, that, that tell you're telling me with what roles you want to have portrayed consistently across the screen what you're focusing on. Yeah. And what's interesting is that um, if we're making parallels to Starfleet and with our discussion of Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine starts to delve into some darker Earth threads, but then kind of abandons them. Like there's the there's the two-parter, or is it even a three-parter, where they're back on Earth with the with the changeling threat. I'm going to mention that in our next episode because there is a relevant guest star. Aha, yes. Uh, yes. But I mean, D.C. Stein even continues th- through that to the end. There's section 31 stuff running through to to the back end of the series. Like, so it's always there in a, as a background. It's just, it's not something that's brought on as heavily. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. TNG has the best malevolent Starfleet episode. Are you talking about the brain worms? Yes, I'm talking about the brain worms. That, I mean, I don't know what, I didn't watch a lot of DS9, uh, not as much as you, but I can't imagine that they had a better, more long running or more cohesive plot line about a malevolent Starfleet than brain worms, which took over all of the admirals and exploded at one point, leaving a brain cave with worm in it. Justin, do you remember when you were running a yeah no we uh, the, the, the Star Trek campaign the Star Trek Adventures RPG uses those uh, parasites as the villain for the starter box. That's amazing and makes me want to play that game because clearly the developers of that game know what's up. Our next question comes from Silver, who asks, "So is this show basically Warhammer 40k with the serial numbers filed off now?" Uh, the, 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 uh, so so I saw this question and I composed a reply on a notepad like doing this Earth isn't Nazi enough uh, they're not Catholic <laughs> enough and they're not fucked up enough to be uh, to be the Imperium of Mankind they, the only real similarity is militarism and telepaths yep. the Eldar and the Minbari definitely like there are parallels there because they're both space elves Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have, I think, the Techno Mages versus 
like some of the relationship of Warhammer with tech, yeah. maybe. But I think you're granting this question entirely more validity than it merits. Hey, hey, we will, uh, we will take most silver. Easy. You know that silver submitted that as a troll question. I know, but and I believe it, it should be. <laughs> um, Fair enough. But the but the other but most of the other alien species don't map to anything. The Centauri and Narn don't really map to anything. I would say even the Vorlons don't map to anything. So there's not a lot there. They both just happen to exist in the 90s. Both had miniature games. Uh, Michael asks, if you could gender swap any character, who would it be? Well, this this gets into a interesting discussion because um, Delenn was initially intended to be uh, male in this season, correct? Yeah, we're gonna we'll talk about it more in the next episode. But yeah, um, Delenn in the pilot was. Uh, costumed to look like a male Minbari, but JMS didn't like the way the voice, the computer generated voice change for Mira Furlan's voice sounded. He thought it sounded hokey and that when they revealed him as a woman, he thought that people would think it was a gimmick because the voice didn't sound right. He thought that people would not buy it and it would feel cheap and he didn't want to make it feel cheap. So... Uh, they took it out. That'd be so interesting with modern costuming and modern technology. And modern sensibilities behind writing, I would say. Yeah. yeah. I think Jakar would be interesting. Maybe, like, I, I think Jakar is interesting no matter gender. Lanier gives me very non-binary vibes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or... Like either that or Veer as well to me. When you're also like sorta kinda trans man, but that's uh, that might be like that is also me reading stuff into characters. Both the near and veer, I would say like the, they would be like they would be fun, like the I could headcanon them as non binary and if I, I feel like that you know, if we were ma- remaking Babylon five twenty five years later Especially following JMS's uh, more recent work, like with Sensate, like seeing more alien and more different alien gender expression would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's why my answer is Londo. I was also going to go with Londo. All the characters, the only thing that changes if you make Jakar a, a woman is it's in theory, assuming that the character stays straight is that it's male exotic dancers coming out of her bedchamber, not female. And if you make Veer, like all those ones you mentioned, it doesn't have a, a, a huge story impact. And maybe that's your, maybe that's your goal. And that that's a totally valid way to go. Maybe what you want to do with that is show that no matter you can change a gender representation of a character and have it not impact the story, which is a, a, an interesting way to go. The alternative, though, and I'm saying and a different, not an alternative, a different way to go, though, is to say, given this opportunity, <laughs> how do I change the story by changing this this character's gender? And the only one I can think of where it matters is Londo, because the Centauri are the only culture we see with very, very clearly defined gender roles. Yeah, they and have for, a very rigid gender binary. 
Yeah, and for whom having a female ambassador would be a fucking big thing. Like that would be that would dramatically change who Londo is and would make it interesting to see what gets that character to that point and does that new Londo follow those same set of steps? Do they still fall in with Morden? Do they what motivates them to do that? Like so I think that would be the change that I would make from a narrative standpoint. It might also add an interesting drive to uh, to going along with Morden because we we have with Londo the the drive of like that he's kind of over the hill and this is his his last chance. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for a female Londo, you might have an aspect of trying to trying to prove oneself that doesn't. That's not quite there for Londo, yeah. or to at least have a different tone. Yeah. I think the other character I think would be interesting is uh, Sinclair. Sinclair's yeah. alone would be interesting, I think, partially just because that sort of role that Sinclair has as that war, that sort of like warrior monk is, I don't think that's something we get to see a lot from women in lead roles. And that would be Agreed. cool. Uh, at least the warrior aspect. I think that the the quiet wisdom is something that we see in a lot of maternal characters, right? In yeah, but shows. It, yeah, it, but it's that balance where you know Sinclair is that sort of philosopher, but also at the same time wants to get into Star Fury and fly into some stuff because if you keep up your flight credentials, you get extra pay. Yeah. No, I could definitely see of like a. A version of Sinclair that is like three parts Kara Thrace, one part. I'm trying to think of who the the other one part would be, but like Rosalind. Yeah, like three yeah. parts Kara, one part Rosalind, and that being a very cool character. Like that being a really interesting character to replace Sinclair. And maybe that hypothetical character would have more chemistry with Catherine Sakai. Yeah, that would, I mean, for sure, if I did Babylon 5 again, I would make it extremely gay because, I mean, it's the, what is it, 22nd or 23rd century? 22nd century? 23rd century. 23rd century? 23rd century is going to be super gay, folks. Just get on board with it. I'm sorry. Working on it. I'm working on it. We have one last question, and uh, we're... It's a doozy. I'm just going to preface this. Please put in headphones, listeners, and because this is going to get bumpy and in more than one way. An anonymous listener asks, we see one instance of alien genitalia this season. Do you have any speculations on other species? So, I went on Bad Dragon today. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa there. Uh, so, so, uh... Find anything interesting there? Um, yeah, I'm pretty... Uh, like, listen, Narjuk has got to have some bumps. <laughs> okay, so here's... I have some thoughts on this. I'm not going to spoil for you whether or not you see any other alien junk. I wouldn't do that. I'm too good of a friend. That said, <laughs> we can make... Just based on the first season, we can make some... Some, some, some theories. Yes. One... Jakar must be compatible with human females somehow. Battery just gives an amazing ad. 
there, yeah, there's well, there there has to be something going on there that is compatible. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what I don't know what he's packing. I know that they have a pouch. And I I also yeah the pouch is is wild. I also feel like with you know that the the Narn are like sort of reptilian ish without mm-hmm. without quite going there. So so maybe we could. Like, would it be like a cloaca sort of situation? Xan Repto Battles. <laughs> there. That's a <laughs> Star Wars <laughs> campaign reference. Yeah. Repto Battles. <laughs> there. Yeah. There. So, that's they, how honestly, they might be. They, they might be, though. Yeah. No, I think they might be. Uh, and then there's reason to believe that the. Minbari might be compat might be kind of compatible with humans. Certainly Delenn's an open question as to what's going on. We know what's up with the Centauri. I hope we see more Centauri dick. But we we don't see any I think it's an interesting point though, because we don't see the hybrid characters the way that we do in say star trek where we have say spock who's half human half vulcan or balana who's half human half klingon etc yeah um that is super not a thing on b5 Mm -hmm. yeah so we'll see what we see but uh my 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 short answer to this question is god i hope so we'll we'll just have to wait and see who knows? For all we know, we've already seen a bunch of alien dick, and we just didn't know it. Entirely possible. Very much. But I think the I think the real question, though, is what are the Vorlons packing? Yeah. Um. God, I don't even want to think about it because I'm pretty sure we would get this podcast okay. banned real quick if I made any jokes. <laughs> I think there are suckers involved. I like to imagine that that's what their ships are. Their ships are just giant Vorlon dogs. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. That's season one. Let's get the, let's close out this cursed season. Yeah. yeah. Season one. You officially can now begin watching season three. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're going to, I'm going to figure out a time for that. And um, yeah, we get, I, I get to start this. I'm a free person. If you've been listening to the end of this, we'll see you next time. We're going to be starting season two. Uh, That's episodes one and two, points of departure and revelations. We're getting a new commander, y'all. All right. Until next time, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.